through the book of Acts, and we've gotten kind of hung up on uh, Acts chapter 2 and uh, just going in a little bit more uh, in-depth into the subject of tongues. Acts 2, we're going to begin reading at verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, Uh, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. Father God, we come to you and we thank you for your word, and I pray that we would tremble at it, that we would rejoice in it, and Father, that we would always be careful to live it out. Uh, Father, we pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully preach your word, and uh, that you would be glorified as uh, that word is quickened to our hearts by faith, and as we seek to bow our lives before it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Four or five weeks ago, we saw the incredibly beautiful symbolism in chapters 1 and 2 as God was forming a new Israel. Now, the old Israel was established at Mount Sinai under Moses, and that was at a Pentecost celebration. Actually, it was the first Pentecost that Israel had celebrated. And on that day, God made his marriage vows to Israel. And Israel made their marriage vows back and said, I do, very literally, all the words that you have spoken to us, these we will do, they said. And um, on that first Pentecost, we saw that uh, the law was spoken in 70 languages of the world, just as uh, God's word is spoken in all of the languages of the world here in Acts chapter 2, just as Israel was established under Moses under 12 princes And 70 elders with a prophetic gifting that was given there, we saw that in Luke 9, God sets apart 12 apostles, and then he sets apart in the next chapter 70 uh, disciples who would be leaders in the church, corresponding to the 70 elders, and they are present here in Acts chapter 2, and together with all of the prophets that were established in this chapter, we're going to be looking at that later, uh, they formed the leadership for this church. We saw that uh, it took 120 males to form a separate Jewish community and that it took 10 males to form, that was the minimum number, for a synagogue. And so in chapter 1, when it talks about the 120 men that were there, the disciples, uh, that was enough to form 12 synagogues. And uh, since on the last Lord's Supper that the Lord spent with his disciples, he promised them that he was going to Uh, give to them the kingdom. He was going to make them uh, princes who would sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In a very literal sense, the kingdom was taken away from the old Israel, and it was given here to a nation that would bring the fruits of the kingdom. And uh, he uses the singular there, Matthew 21, 43. 
And therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Now, there were many nations that come into this one, but in the uh, early part of Acts, it was an entirely Jewish uh, church. And so God is really reconstituting here a new Israel. And there's a lot of other parallels that we looked at, just as there was a theophany of the Holy Spirit at uh, Pentecost with wind and fire and lightning. There's a theophany of the Spirit here. Uh, there is uh, wind and fire. I don't think there was any lightning, but uh, there was wind and fire. But unlike Mount Sinai, where at least the Jewish tradition says that uh, tongues were spoken in the 70 languages, but that was it. It stopped. Here it continues on. If you look at verse 4, it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. Now, there were some things that just happened on Pentecost. The fire, you know, the theophany, things like that. And there were even aspects of, of tongues uh, as a sign of Israel uh, being uh, rejected and uh, in the future, 70 AD, the Gentiles coming against them. I think it was a beautiful sign of that. It's a beautiful sign of the times of the Gentiles. But unlike what many charismatics say, that this was a unique gifting of hearing only. It was not a gift of speech. We believe, no, this was a gift of speech, and it continues on. They think that this did not continue on. This is the only time that that happened. And so we say, no, uh, that word began. If you look in commentaries, they will say the word began implies that the tongues continued after Pentecost. And so there was a continuation on, at least during the, thir the early years. And so today we're going to spend one more Sunday on the subject of tongues. And uh, we're going to look at, uh, at 1 Corinthians 14. I think we've spent most of, um, uh, looked at most everything that needs to be looked at in Acts chapter 2. So if you turn to 1 Corinthians 14, this is Paul's inspired commentary on what was going on in the book of Acts uh, with tongues. Now, there is a difference because in Acts 2, it was outside the church. In Acts 14, predominantly inside the church, it mentions in Acts 14 that there is tongues outside and inside, but it's, it's different context, but otherwise it's the same. And so let me just give you a little bit of um, review of what we have covered so far. So far we've demonstrated that the tongues of Acts 2 is not the gift of hearing, that it's a true language, not pre-linguistic, inarticulate speech, uh, we've seen, thirdly, that it is identical to the tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and that's something that most, not all, but most charismatics disagree with. I then gave 15 proofs that the tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 was a true language. It wasn't just odd noises that were coming out of their mouths. It was a true uh, language. Contrary to the claims of many, we saw that uh, tongues does not just have the purpose of prayer, uh, many people say it's a prayer language, that only the Spirit who is praying and the Father understand, but we see... Now, there's multiple purposes. In Acts chapter 2, it had the purpose of teaching. And in Acts chapter... I mean, 1 Corinthians 14, we see, yes, it had the purpose for prayer, and they composed songs in other languages. But there it says that uh, they used it for prophesying, for communicating knowledge, and simply teaching in another language while someone else was translating. It was simply the ability to speak in one of the other languages of the world. Now, we did deal with several objections to that. First uh, Corinthians 13, verses 1 and 2, the languages of angels and things like that. Then last week, we went through First Corinthians 14, verse by verse, and we saw how every single verse shows that the tongue speaker understood exactly what he was saying. 
Okay, he understood it, he spoke it, it was not mindless gibberish. It was a true miracle where people could uh, understand and be able to teach, be able to give the announcements or anything else that they did, be able to do that in another language. And uh, I documented quite a number of examples of people who uh, were, have been given this gift of being able to all of a sudden understand in another language and to preach in that on the mission field. In fact, I've got some friends. Some have been temporarily given that. Some have been given that permanently. And you can contact them and uh, talk to people who have seen this. Now, if those examples are credible, and remember we said our experience is not determinative of exegesis. It's not infallible. Only the Word of God is fallible, right? But if it is credible examples, then that is exactly what the, the tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 looks like and what the tongues in Acts chapter 2 looks like. And we saw it is quite different than the, the tongues that goes on in the charismatic churches. The Spirit heightens our rationality, does not take it away. Now, we also saw that both Acts and Corinthians show the primary purpose of tongues to be an evangelistic tool. Uh, with those who do not know the language that you're speaking in. Uh, and we can see that in, I think, very clearly in Acts chapter 2. But you can see it in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 18 through 19. We also saw it in verse 23, which says, Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. So its primary purpose was not for believers, but it was to reach out to unbelievers, he was saying. And he said he spoke in tongues more than they all, but in the church, uh, he'd rather not have to speak in tongues if, if he could get away with it. He said, I'd rather speak 10,000 words outside the church in tongues than, than inside. But anyway, uh, that was the primary purpose. Now, here was the problem. The Corinthians were not using it and in its primary purpose, instead what they were doing, since they had been given the ability to speak in who knows, two, three, four, we don't know how many languages one individual may have been able to speak in. So they were showing off in the worship service by speaking in languages when there weren't any foreigners there to hear. And he said, that, that, that showing off has got to stop. And he said, even when there are foreigners there that need to hear it, make sure that you translate it so that the whole congregation is edified. Now, Paul did affirm that speaking in multiple languages does have its place in worship. That's a secondary purpose, but it does have its place if nine rules are followed. So we're going to be looking at the nine rules that are in your handouts today. There should be extras on the back table if you need more. Um, and even if you don't believe that there is any tongues today, I think you're going to see these rules have incredibly practical uh, applications for our lives. And especially as we engage in more and more international uh, ministries, uh, we're going to want to keep these rules in mind. First rule is, in the church worship service, we are to do only that which is profitable to the whole congregation. Uh, you can see that spelled out in chapter 12, verse 7, chapter 14, verses 6, 9, 12, 16, 17, 19, 26. I'm not going to list out all the verses on all of these points that are in your outlines, but look at verse... Uh, 7 of chapter 12. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. No breaking into subgroups here. He says the purpose when you're getting together is that all be profited. Corporate worship. Chapter 14, verse 12. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church 
that you seek to excel. Now, he is not denying that a person in that first century, he was speaking in another language and nobody else was translated. He was not denying that that person was edified. I mean, he's assumed that all the way through the chapter. They know what they're saying. In fact, if you look at chapter 14, verse 4, it says they're edified. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But Paul's point in giving this rule is this. Just because it edifies you, just because you can do it, does not give you the right to speak in another language in the congregation. It's got to benefit the whole congregation. Um, I think this principle obviously rules out anything in uh, uh, worship that's directly related to language, but let's apply this a little bit further. I think it also rules out anything that smacks of private devotions. And this has been a Reformed principle for many, many years. For example, it's quite common in churches to have uh, lengthy, um, silent confessions of sin. In fact, we've done it in this congregation. And I've wondered, is that really biblical, to have lengthy private uh, confessions? We're really supposed to confess our sins before we even get to the worship service, right? But uh, the lengthy uh, times of... Of, uh, of confession, one of the older reform principles is that that is not appropriate because everything we do needs to be corporate and something that others understand what is being said, that we need to be able to say amen to. Look at verse 16. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks? He's implying we need to be able to say amen at all of the prayers that go into the congregation. How will they be able to say amen at your giving of thanks since he does not understand what you say? Um, Obviously, it applies to somebody speaking in another language because how can we say amen if we don't know it? But does it not apply as well if there's a whole bunch of people who are giving their individual prayers and we don't know what we're saying amen to? It's become private devotions. Uh, In the Quaker tradition, there's... um, there is a long tradition of sometimes having an entire worship service where nobody says anything. They just sit there and everybody does their own praying. And uh, so I I would think that this would uh, rule that out. We're going to be seeing later on in the book of Acts, it's in chapter 4, that when there was prayer, there was one voice praying, and yet everyone was united in that prayer. It was the, the whole congregation in agreement. Uh, Verse 16, I think, also rules out our minds wandering in prayer. Because if you're wandering in prayer, how can you say amen to what has just been prayed, and yet the Scripture over and over again commands that there be an audible amen to the prayers that are given up, at least if they're biblical. Don't say amen if it's an unbiblical prayer, right? But Psalm 106, 48 says, Let all the people say amen. So if you want to be biblical, men, women, and children should be saying an amen. Now, that's not leadership. We're going to be seeing in a moment that there's appropriate places to speak, but when there's a response to that which the leader is doing, that's perfectly appropriate. This also rules out uh, what goes on in churches where everybody turns around and you form a little group of five people to have prayer meeting during the uh, worship service. Now, I have no problem with that and, and, you know, prayer assemblies. But in the public worship service, we're going to be seeing later one of the reasons why, but in the public worship service, uh, God wants us to have a formal, united focus on one prayer, one sermon, one song that is being sung where everybody's doing it together. 
Uh, this also rules out the Korean-style prayers uh, where everybody's praying at the top of their lungs at the same time. I don't know if you've ever been in a Korean worship service. Not, the, not just charismatics. Everybody does it this way. And uh, they don't know what everybody else is playing, praying because they're just hearing themselves praying. Everybody's doing it at the same time. Okay, second rule. Never speak in another language in the congregation unless there is a person in that congregation who understands that language. I mean, that's the whole point of having foreign languages. It's to benefit the foreigners. They love the foreigners being with them. Verse 11 makes clear that it's the congregation who needs the interpreter, not the foreigner. But if a foreigner is not present, verse 2 indicates you're simply speaking to God and not to men. If there was a foreigner present, hey, you would be speaking to, to, to men. You'd be speaking to that foreigner, right? But if there was no foreigner present, you're simply speaking to God, not to men. And the whole rest of the chapter completely rules that out. In verse 9, Paul forbids what he calls speaking into the air. Now, even with a translator, if there's nobody present who understands that language, you're still speaking into the air during the time that that foreign language is being spoken, right? But if there is a foreigner and there is a translator at all times, you're speaking to someone. And so it fits the, the biblical language. Look at verse 28. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Now, some people use this to justify everybody um, mumbling fairly quietly, sometimes loudly, but uh, under their breath in tongues. But that's not really being silent. That's still speaking, maybe speaking softly, but this says be silent. In other words, they're to pray to, to, uh, to God and to themselves in their, in their head. We've already seen that verse 16 indicates there should always be someone who can say amen to a prayer. And in your outline, you can see some of the other proofs uh, for this principle. Now, are there any practical ramifications for... You know, there's no miraculous uh, tongues in this congregation, right? Is there any practical ramifications for how we uh, fill out this rule? Well, I would say um, this rule would rule out uh, Travis praying in Hebrew, since he knows Hebrew so well, right? Even if he translates, it rules it out. Why? Because there's nobody who knows Hebrew in this congregation who can benefit from that Hebrew prayer. Now, we bless the Lord. He knows Hebrew so well. <laughs> But um, the point is, when you're speaking in another language, it needs to be for the benefit of somebody that's there. Otherwise, it's a pointless thing. Uh, there are some songs that I have seen where there is an entire verse that no one understands, unless you know Hebrew, right? It would rule out that kind of a thing. Um, names of God would be another example that, that would not violate this principle, um, because we're supposed to know the names of God, right? Uh, so I, 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 I would say this principle says that unless there is a person who knows the language, and you might say who only knows a different language, but that's maybe going too far, at least there has to be somebody who knows the language. You shouldn't uh, use another language in the congregation, in the worship service, excuse me. Rule three, no more than two or three people are allowed to speak in tongues in any given service. Now, this rule alone would cramp the style of 99% of the charismatic worship services that I'm familiar with, and yet it's so clear. Look at verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. 
Uh, I, I don't know if any of you guys have been in uh, charismatic circles, uh, but uh, frequently everybody is praying in what they consider to be tongues anyway, praying at the same time. I can sometimes hardly hear myself think, uh, and, and Pastor Durham's been to some of these uh, pastor's meetings where everybody's praying in tongues like, man, this is bedlam. You can't, even, you can't even hear yourself thinking. That violates this rule. Now, some have pointed to verse 26 and say, no, no, no. Verse 26 violates this principle, not violates, contradicts your so-called rule, Phil Kaiser. Uh, that's, uh, that's not appropriate. Because in verse 26, it's obvious he allows everyone to speak in tongues, everyone to prophesy. Uh, and I don't know how many times I've heard them use this verse, so let's read it. Verse 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. In other words, they say all those things. Now, I want you to notice, though, and this is not a command. Now, they treat it like a command. They treat it, this is normative. This is instructions. Everybody should be prepared and come to the worship service to be able to do these things. But it's not a command. It is a statement of fact. It's a statement of what is already going on. And why did Paul write the epistle of 1 Corinthians? It's to correct what's going on, right? And if you look at the next verse, the next verse uh, makes clear that he is contradicting that. But let, let, let's just break down the verse itself quickly. He says, how is it then, brethren? And that's Paul's way of basically saying, what's going on here? Okay, that's what he's saying, basically. The next part of the verse is Paul basically rebuking them for violating the rule that few people should be leaders. He is saying, what's going on here? Everyone thinks he can bring his own psalm, his own teaching, his tongue, his revelation. That is causing disorder and the church is not being edified. And then in verse 26, he's quite clear. He's going to correct what is going on. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three. Earlier, each one had a tongue that they were bringing, right? He says, no, that's not appropriate. Let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. Now, this means that churches that take verse 26 as normative for worship are not being biblical. Uh, Paul wants worship services led, not just happening, led by a man, not just happening as the Spirit, you know, supposedly is, is leading people. We're going to be seeing that the Spirit always does things in order. But for this point, just because we have the ability to speak does not give us the right to speak. Now, if you look at verse 26, you'll see that that rebuke applies equally to every other portion as it does to tongues, okay? Worship is not the time for everyone to get involved in the act. Each of these people want to have a teaching in the church, and yet James 3, 1 says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. So he's saying it is not the place for each one to bring his own teaching. Verse 26 also indicates that the worship service is not the place for everybody to raise their hand and give their favorite psalm, their favorite hymn that they want to sing. And it's not the place for people to stand up and say, hey, guys, I think the Lord has just given me a revelation. I want to share it with the church. He's saying, no, there's two or three prophets. Remember, we saw apostleship and prophecy has ceased. And we saw that's very, very clear. But uh, in any way, back then, that was not the place. There was two or three. Now, why this emphasis on few leaders? It's because the worship service is the place of our formal entrance before the king 
where everything is orchestrated. Now, that's not to say that God is against impromptu worship, you know, on our own. Or for the kids to say, Dad, can we sing a given song in our family worship, which hopefully you're doing every day of the week, family worship, right? Uh, That's not inappropriate. But there's a huge difference between public worship and private worship. And, uh, in fact, he alluded to it earlier, Pastor Durham did, but um, uh, James Jordan uses the illustration of a king with his child. And uh, in the informal times that he's with his children, the children can cuddle on the lap and talk with him and just have a great old time. But when the children are present at the uh, public ceremonies that the king has to regularly go through, he can't just do anything that he wants. He has to do just like everybody else does. And so... The child has to stand when everybody else stands, has to sit when everybody else sits. He can't just speak when he wants to speak to his daddy because there are ceremonies that they are going through, right? And so the people that speak at the king's ceremony, James Jordan points out, are the people who are the advisors of the king. They are the the people who are the leaders uh, in, in that empire. Well, the same is true in worship, formal worship. Okay, there's different kinds of worship, but the formal Sunday worship, you will look in vain in the Old and the New Testaments uh, to find the, the kind of informal banter back and forth that happens in charismatic and many non-charismatic churches. Read Ezra and Nehemiah, for example. What you find is people coming before uh, the, the, the priests, and the priests are there, uh, the Levites were there in the pulpits, They're preaching to the people, reading from the scriptures. And yes, there are responses of amen and praise the Lord and people raising their hands there and they're singing that they give, but they would not dare to interrupt with their own ideas and say, you know, that reminds me, I've got a word for this congregation too, okay? Uh, They would not do that. And for sure, they would never have dared to turn this rebuke in verse 26 into a mandate for worship. That would rob people of a sense of the majesty of God. And so it's really a philosophy of worship. By the way, there's a lot about John Frame's books on worship that I like. But this is one area I think he has completely misinterpreted. And it's a fatal flaw in his books because it introduces things into worship that the Scripture nowhere uh, does. Rule number four. Only one person may speak at a time. Verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three. We've already dealt with that. But look at the next phrase. Each in turn. Now, again, this rules out uh, what happens in most charismatic churches where everybody is uh, praying at the same time. Also rules out the Korean-style worship services that we uh, mentioned earlier. But what is true of tongues is true of other things as well. Look at verses 29 through 31. Let two or three prophets speak. Okay, same rule as with tongues. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. So they can't talk at the same time. They have to do it one at a time. Then verse 31 says, For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Notice, first of all, they can do it one by one. Now, this is a verse that they use to try to counter verse 29. Not all of them do, but many of them do. And they say, see, everybody in the congregation is allowed to prophesy in the worship service. But the all refers to the two or three prophets he has just finished talking about that have been selected already. Otherwise, there is a contradiction. All of them may prophesy. 
The next part of verse 27 gives the fifth rule. Let one interpret. And so rule number five is no one is ever to speak in tongues or a foreign language unless there is an interpreter or a translator. And the outline gives several more scriptures to prove that. And then it goes on to say, since what cannot be understood is of no value to anyone, verse 6 says, what shall I profit you? And I give several other scriptures. And then the last part of the rule says, and may lead to a bad testimony to unbelievers. Now, this is another rule that is repeated so frequently in this chapter, is so clear, it just boggles my mind that so many charismatic churches just totally ignore it. Now, not all do. There are some who really do try to have an interpretation for every single what they consider to be tongues, but they're the rare, rare bird. In fact, uh, Tom mentioned a couple of weeks ago that uh, there was a professor from the college down here who used to visit different churches, and he went to one charismatic church where they had a mic for the tongue speakers, a mic for the interpreters, and they were going through and giving different interpretations. They probably had more than two or three by the way he was talking. But anyway, he decided he would get up and quote a verse from the Greek New Testament without giving the reference. And so he quotes it in Greek, and an interpreter gets up and says, well, this is what the Lord has just said and very dogmatically said. Here, here it is. And he says, no, that's not. I just quoted from the New Testament, and here is the verse that I quoted. But at least they were trying, right? <laughs> they were trying to have an interpreter uh, for, uh, for each of these things. So again, once, once again, 99% of so-called tongues that goes on in most churches violates this rule. It makes you question whether it is truly of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit would not move a person to do that which is contrary to his own rules. By the way, we've already seen that with real tongues, the tongue speaker knows what he's talking about. So if this guy's coming up with a different translation, he's going to know it's a bad translation. We saw the reason why you need to have a translator and a speaker. It is very difficult to translate for yourself, although two verses in chapter 14 said you can translate for yourself, but it's going to be very difficult. Now, are there any other applications we can make? Well, I would say if there are Hebrew words in the scripture songs that we sing, they must have a translation right there in the margin uh, that everybody can see what they're singing. And the only reason I can see anyway for having Hebrew in your songs is if it's a name of God uh, that we should know anyway. Rule six is one that close to 100% of charismatic churches flunk out on. It says, women must not speak in church. And Paul is not ambiguous in the least. Look at verses 34 through 35. It says, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Now, this rules out not only tongues, but interpretation of tongues and prophecy and anything else that is done solo, that is done solo, okay? Gordon Fee, in his commentary, he's very embarrassed by this verse. He can't get around it, so he says, well, this can't possibly be Scripture. Somebody must have inserted these words uh, into the Bible. And we say, no, this is an inspired rule of God. Now, let's dig into this a little bit deeper. Why would God lay down this rule? Is it because women were not able to speak in tongues or were not able to prophesy? And we say, no, no, that's not the reason at all. In the book of Acts, it's very clear that women were given the gift of being able to speak other languages. 
they were given the gift of prophecy. And you can see an example in Acts 21.9 where there were uh, the daughters of Philip, I think it was, uh, who were prophesying. And so they obviously had that gift. They used it outside the church, not inside the church. Can women teach? Well, obviously women can teach. In fact, older women are commanded to teach the younger women in the church in Titus chapter 2. But where do they teach? It's not in church. They teach in their homes. And so it's not the presence of the gift that qualifies it. The reason all of these things were forbidden is that inside the church, speaking solo always implies leadership. Even speaking in prayer implies leadership in prayer. That's why we call it would somebody lead in prayer, right? It's leading in prayer. And the rest of us are following along in our minds and saying amen, or you've got to be kidding. <laughs> One of the two. Um, we're, we're following the leader. And that's why in Acts chapter 1, you've got the men praying, even though the women are with them. It's the men who are praying. That's why in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it calls upon the males, and it's a very explicit word. It's males, not just men generally. It calls upon the males to pray, and it calls very specifically for the women to be silent in the praying and in the teaching. So 1 Timothy 2, just as clear this passage is. So let me repeat that. Speaking solo in the worship service always implies leadership. And this is why in some Reformed churches, not in this one, but in some Reformed churches, the only people who are allowed to pray, to read the Scripture, to preach, are the teaching pastors. Some say teaching pastors and the uh, ruling elders or ruling pastors. Uh, we say, no, the Scripture gives great evidence that uh, the men of the congregation were uh, praying as well. Uh, very clearly. Why? Because the men are the lowest uh, uh, level of leadership in the congregation. They are the pastors of their families. Uh, we don't believe in individualism where every individual as an individual is dealt with by the church. That would obliterate the family. We believe that families are incorporated in and those families have a shepherd uh, that is placed uh, over them. And so we do have men lead in prayer just as they did in the synagogues, but it's a leadership function. And again, this highlights the formality of worship that Pastor Durham was bringing up earlier uh, because we're coming before the king. This is not the time for the children and the women uh, to speak out. In fact, in verses 34 through 35, it indicates they should not even be asking questions. You say, why would that be? Well, when you ask questions very easily you can lead and direct where the conversation or where the teaching is going to go just by the questions that are asked. And Paul says, I want to avoid anything that would show leadership uh, in that way. And what applies to women applies equally to children. Children should not talk out solo. In other words, on their own initiative. Unison praying? Absolutely yes. Um, unison readings, saying amen and following a leadership? Yes, absolutely. Now, this has made some people outside of this church rather angry and <laughs> rather upset. And I just tell them, look, don't argue with me. You've got to argue with Paul. You've got to argue with God. Those are, I'm just reporting the rules. I'm not making the rules, okay? And so I think this is something that uh, we cannot get around. And I, that just shocks me. Gordon Fee, an evangelical, who without a shred of evidence from the Greek manuscripts, every Greek manuscript has those words in it, says, well, I think it's chauvinistic, and so it's out. It's not part of Scripture. He doesn't like it. Um, and I think it's a dangerous position to be in. Rule 7, 
can be taken verbatim from verse 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. Uh, the Greek word for decently, you can see in your outlines there, euskemanos, uh, basically means don't be weird. Okay, that's basically what it means. Uh, here are a couple of dictionary definitions. In a becoming manner, decently, with propriety. That's from Lawanida. Another dictionary has, having a good schema could mean appearance, outward bearing, correct moral conduct, or high social class. You could say being classy. A uh, dictionary goes on, the emphasis is sometimes on decent behavior, sometimes on order and beauty, sometimes on respectability and nobility, unquote. And so the first word indicates we need to have a respectable and a dignified worship. Wow, does that rule out a lot of worship services I've been to, or there's all kinds of strange, bizarre behavior that's going on. People falling and barking and cavorting on the, on the ground in the laughter movement. The second word simply means careful order and arrangement. That's the word that we get taxonomy from, taxis, okay? One dictionary says an arranging, order, good discipline, order, orderly manner. Another dictionary has an arrangement of things in sequence, fixed succession, a state of good order, order, proper procedure. In other words, what he is saying here is that the church service must never be spontaneous like charismatics want it to be. Now, there's a lot of things. Charismatics do good, and we can learn from them. But what we're dealing with here is this subject of tongues. Uh, it, it should never be spontaneous. And they say, hey, don't knock us. We are simply following the lead of the Holy Spirit. He's guiding us in this. And I say to them, no, you're not following the lead of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is already led. Let me read you the scripture that the Holy Spirit has given to you. I read the scripture and he says he wants you to have careful planning. He wants there to be order. And uh, what you are doing is contrary to that. You are not following the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And then they say, well, we just can't help it. The Spirit is moving us to do these bizarre behaviors. We can't help it. And we say, no. The scripture very clearly has laid out, we saw that last week, that anybody who speaks in tongues, anybody who's given any of these gifts, the spirit never bypasses the mind and he always enables us to be in full control of our gift. You cannot use that excuse. And even that was even true of the prophets. Look at verse 32. It says the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. All of Paul's rules presuppose that the tongue speakers can control their tongues. They can be speaking when they need to be speaking and be silent when they need to be silent. And the elders are responsible to make sure that these rules are followed. They need to make sure things are done decently and in order. Now, here's another objection that I've had come up. They say, well, who defines what's decent? Who defines what order? We think this is decent and in order. And what I would say is God and God alone can define his terms. We cannot do that. And over and over in the scriptures, God lays down exactly what he wants in the worship services. And he's told us, don't add to it, do not take away from it. Let me read you one example. Deuteronomy 12, 31 through 32. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. Uh, we call that the regulative principle of worship, and I've preached entire sermons on that, so we won't delve into it. But God defines order, decency, and beauty. Eighth rule, everyone who has the gift of tongues should be willing to be used 
and should be used uh, in some capacity or another, whether inside or outside the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 21. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. God would not have given the ability to understand a foreign language and be able to speak in that foreign language if he did not intend for that gift uh, to be used. And uh, this, this chapter is made clear. It's not just something that has to be used in the church. In fact, that's not the primary function for tongues. The primary function was to enable us to reach out into the world, right? And to be effective out there. But whether inside or outside the church, we want the people of this congregation to have their gifts well used. Don't hide your talent under a bushel. One of the rules that I have uh, made in my family is that every one of our children, even when they were very young, had to donate four, at least four hours of time to the church every week. And the reason that we did that, I didn't do that because I'm a pastor. I would do that whether I was a pastor or wasn't a pastor. I did that because I want my kids growing up not imitating what other people do who sit on pews and never serve in the church, contrary to the biblical mandate. But I want them growing up realizing this is the biblical mandate. I've got a habit of life. And when I leave this city, maybe, and go to some other church, I'm immediately going to be asking, how can I serve this church? And sometimes they do four to six hours a week. Some of them are cleaning in the church offices. Some of them are doing cooking. Um, what are some of the other jobs? Uh, we've got a boatload of different jobs that we involve our kids in. And I highly recommend that you do this with your families, that you encourage your children right from the start not to be so self-absorbed and so absorbed in the family that you're not ministering out there in the congregation. I think it's really an important thing to be teaching to your children. But you know what's even more important? You do it right along with them, right? If you send your kids to us and say, okay, Pastor Phil and Pastor Glenn, uh, we're going to have our kids working for you this week, four hours, and you're not coming along, what you're teaching your, your children is, uh, don't do like your parents uh, do, do like they say, right? And so what I really encourage you to do is come to us and say, you know, we want to, as a family, serve together. I want to lead in service, lead by example, and Pastor Phil and Pastor Glenn, could you please assign us? Maybe you won't be able to do four hours, but surely you can do one hour, right? One or two hours. And so I, that, that, I think, is a, an application we need to make. And then that leads very naturally to the last rule. If all the above rules are kept, do not forbid to speak with tongues. We would welcome a person who was able to translate my sermons and translate the prayers and the other aspects of the worship service. We would welcome them to be involved here. We would welcome them outside the church. That would be an awesome thing. That would be an incredible thing. We do not uh, forbid to speak with tongues. Now, let me offer up just a few concluding comments. You might still wonder, why, why is this all so important? Because you've not been around uh, charismatic circles. Uh, well, it's important for a number of reasons. First of all, when charismatics accuse you of violating the scriptures, because of all of the material that we've given here, you can gently show them that really they are the ones who are out of accord with the scripture, especially in the areas of apostleship, prophecy, and tongues, those three. There's a lot we can learn from them, I've said already. 
But on those three, uh, out of accord with the Scriptures. And when they accuse you of limiting God's hand by denying tongues, you can say, no, I'm not denying tongues. I know missionaries who have the gift of tongues. I would be delighted if God gave me the gift of being able to speak in another language and help this church out and their missionary functions. That would be a blessing. That would be tremendous. But what you have been giving is not uh, uh, fitting with what Paul says in... 1 Corinthians 14. By the way, I I think I've mentioned this already. Virtually every religion in the world has people who have tongues-like experiences. And Paul, I think, may have in part been responding against the religion of uh, Apollos and the religion of Dionysius. You can look it up in any of the history books. You'll see they had uh, prophecy, ecstatic prophecy, and ecstatic tongues, other languages. And yet, uh, it was the, as the demonic frequently does, it bypasses the mind and people don't even know what they are saying. That's not the way God works. And so in part, he may be, uh, have been um, doing that. But I mentioned before, I think there are four types of tongues. There's biblical tongues, true language. There's demonic tongues, which is, I think, true language as well. The witch doctors out in Ethiopia, when they got demon-possessed, they spoke true languages that they didn't know before. And uh, many religions of the world today have that. Then there's people who feel left out. They fake it. They make sounds just so that they fit in. And then we mentioned that there is a, uh, a phenomenon where th- there is almost like a disconnect between the brain and the tongue. And many times it's through emotional trauma that this happens where there's a torrent of sounds that come out of your mouth, usually without words, but sometimes words mixed in with non-words, and even unbelievers can experience this. And so I want you to be clear so that you're not sucked in. When they ask you, don't you want the fullness of the Holy Spirit in your life? You say, absolutely, yes, I do. I delight in all that the Spirit has to give, but I want more than what you are offering. I want what the Scripture talks about, the highlighting uh, of my understanding of the good things of God rather than a bypassing of my understanding. And so those are the rules that God has given regarding tongues. And that's as far as we're going to go on the subject today. And I'm debating. I'm thinking I'll put together all of these three sermons because several people have asked, can I have this in print? And so I'll I'll try to edit this and uh, put it together still sermon format, but where you can have it in a a handout that you can give to others. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. What an incredible guide it is to our lives, to our walk. And help us, Father, to rejoice in that, to live by it. And uh, I pray that uh, as our uh, lives more and more come into conformity with your word, that we would be a sweet savor to those who are outside. Uh, a godly testimony of what it means to be a, uh, a church uh, properly ordered and organized according to your word. We recognize that we have got a long ways to go. And yet, Father, we thank you for the light that you have shed upon our way. And so we pray for your presence and your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.